Hello, Passion City Church. It's great to be with you. Uh, thrilled to see you, Atlanta, D.C., everybody who's tracking with us around the world. It's so awesome to be together. And I'm grateful for Pastor Louis to inviting me to be a part of this series together. So if you've got a copy of your scriptures, we are in Isaiah chapter 7. So turn there, Isaiah chapter 7, and we're going to read a bunch of different verses together. I'll look at a few here before we pray. But let me just tell you, I'm excited about the message God has for us today. I think it's going to help us as we continue this series. And so Isaiah, either turn or scroll to Isaiah 7. Let me read to you a couple verses. Isaiah 7:14 says this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now move over to Isaiah 9. Let me read you a couple verses. Verse 2 says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. Verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for a moment to gather around your word. And Lord, we just invite you now to teach us. And this holiday season, we know for some, it's a time of great joy and expectation. For others, it's a time of great trial. But wherever we are in our circumstances and in our faith journey with you, we need to hear from you, God. And so, Lord, open our ears to hear your word. Open our minds to understand it. Quicken our hearts to feel what you want us to feel. And I pray the way we conduct ourselves in this season would change as a result of these few minutes. And all of that is bigger than what I can do, what Passion City can do, but you can do it. And so I want to invite all of you, if you're willing, take a minute and would you pray and ask God, tell him, Lord, please teach me today. And then if you would, please pray for me that the Lord would use me and I'd be helpful to you. Well, Father, we love you and we trust you. Use this time and we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow was without question the most famous poet in America in his day. Uh, his poetry shaped American culture, probably most famously his poem on Paul Revere's ride. Longfellow accomplished what very few poets ever have in their life. He was both famous and paid while still alive. He was called our nation's singer. And some of you may know, some of you may not, that Longfellow wrote a Christmas carol. It was a poem entitled, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. Uh, maybe you've sung it. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Maybe you sang it at church. But maybe you don't know that there were actually six stanzas to that poem and the original place it was uh, published took out the three middle stanzas and usually when we sing it, we do as well. So if you don't know, he wrote it in 1863. In 1861, his wife, the love of his life, perished tragically in a fire in their home. The Civil War broke out and his eldest son went to fight in the war and was shot through the back. And it was in the midst of that grieving that Wadsworth said, Christmas has no joy for me. And he wrote this poem. 
And the stanzas we cut out say this. Then from each black and accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south. And with the sound, the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and it mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Turns out Longfellow didn't really like those bells, at least by stanza four. And some of you may go, wow, Ben, that got dark quick. You're like, hey kids, why don't you play in the other room? This pastor just got real sad inside. Uh, why would you say that? Why would you bring this up? Well, this poem's come to mind for me because you may not be having a Longfellow Christmas, but I think we are all having a COVID Christmas. And there's something about a COVID Christmas that seems to slap the saccharine sweetness out of this holiday season. That I think for many of us, Christmas is usually this time of sentiment, of peace on earth, goodwill towards men. But the difficulties of this year have just burned off a lot of that fluff. And I think for many of us, maybe the good news is it forces us to ask the question, does Christmas have anything else to offer? Is it just sticky, sweet sentiment? Or is there something real I can rest my life on? And I love this series that Pastor Louie brought us into called Waiting here for you. It's a place of longing. Every human being is longing for hope and for peace in the world. We're waiting for it. Where will it come? And Grant did an amazing job last week of talking about waiting for God and that God is with us in that waiting, that he has purposes that we cannot see his hand, we trust his heart, right? And yet here, we're gonna talk about waiting here. If we're gonna talk about waiting, a good question is where are we waiting? Where are we? Which I think for many of us, we've been asking that question during COVID. Where am I? Like, are we really living in a world where everyone's walking around in masks and not touching each other? What is going on? We need some context to understand where we can get hope in Christmas. And so I thought about you, to be honest, those of you who maybe this is the only time of year you go to church. Uh, and I'm not judging you for that. I just, you've been in my mind. I have a lot of people I love that the only time they really listen to a sermon is around this season. So they've heard countless sermons about shepherds keeping watch of their flocks by night and angels and mangers. And all those passages are amazing. But as I thought about preaching on a passage on here, I quoted these texts you probably knew. The virgin will be born, will give birth to a son and call him Emmanuel. Uh, a child will begin to given to us. These texts I read, you're probably familiar with, but you don't know the original context they were given in. And so I thought if we're going to talk about context waiting here, let's look at the context where these verses were given. Let's look at the situation they were in as they waited, because I think what you'll find is it will give us clarity on the perspective and the situation we're in as we're waiting. So what I wanna do in our few minutes together is I wanna tell you a story about an evil king named Ahaz. Uh, and it starts in Isaiah seven. It says, in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount up an attack against it. And when the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of the people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. 
Now, there's a lot of detail there we won't get into, but the point you need to know is the king over Judah, the people of God in the Old Testament, gets word that the two nations closest to him have formed an alliance and are going to attack him. And so what's the context these original verses of hope were given in? Their context was political instability. And did you notice when they heard about it, their hearts grew faint and they shook like a tree in the wind. What was their context? Political instability and widespread anxiety. Can you imagine? Try to imagine a day like that. Political instability and widespread anxiety. That's the place we're at. And into this moment, God sends his prophet to speak. And it says in verse three, and the Lord said, Isaiah, go to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashubab, your son, it was bring your son to work day, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear. Do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. The prophet tells them in the middle of a season of anxiety and political unrest, I don't want you to fear. I want you to be calm. Which a natural question would be, why? Why would I do that? And he says in verse seven, thus says the Lord, it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, the head of Damascus is Rezin, and within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from even being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. He says, you don't need to be afraid. Why? He says, because the thing you most fear isn't gonna happen. It shall not come to pass. It's not going to occur. And then he gives them a sign to prove it. And that's our verse, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And you go, wait, that sounds familiar. That's, that's quoted in the gospels. And you go, yes, back here, he's not talking about an immaculate conception like with Mary, where she's told, though you've never known a man, the spirit of God will overshadow you and you'll give birth to the God man, Jesus. In this context, a young woman will give birth to a child. And then it says, here's the sign in verse 16. And before the boy knows how to refuse evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Now we'll get into how this relates to Jesus in a moment. Hang with me. But catch what the prophet is saying to Ahaz. In a time of instability and anxiety, don't be afraid. Why? Because what you fear won't come to pass. And here's your sign. When a child is born, before he knows the difference between good and evil, the thing you fear will cease to exist. And let me just stop there and say how many of us, we are afraid of things that never come to pass. We feel real stress about hypothetical situations. I remember when I lived here in Atlanta, I went to the dentist and as he was doing a checkup, he was like, did you know you've shattered your enamel? I said, what? And he said, the protective coating over your teeth, you've grounded and shattered it like glass. I was like, okay. I said, uh, well, what do I need to do? And he said, yoga, meditative breathing. I was like, what? I thought he was gonna recommend a mouthwash. But he was like, no, you don't get enamel back. You've been stressed and you've done damage. How many of you stress about hypothetical situations has caused real world damage? How many of you have lost real sleep because of what may or may not come to pass or have been short-tempered with your real spouse and kids 
over your stress over a hypothetical situation that may not be. He tells them, what you're afraid of will not come to pass. And he tells them, in your season of waiting, let me tell you where you are. You will either be shaky in fear or you'll be firm in faith. Stand firm in your faith or you won't be firm at all. So what's our first context? It's either gonna be shaky in fear or stable in faith. And then Isaiah does something really wild to him. He says, here's the thing, Ahaz. The thing you're afraid of is not your real problem. Your real problem is not what you think is your problem. He says, your greatest problem is not what you're scared of, but what you're trusting in. And he tells him in verse 17, the Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the days of Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. He tells him, you're worried about the two little bitty nations. The great superpower of Assyria is going to crush you. And he tells him later, and that day the Lord will whistle for the fly at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will come and settle in the steep ravines and the clefts of the rock on the thorn bushes in every pasture, and the day the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river, the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it will sweep away your beard also. See, Isaiah knew something about King Ahaz. He knew what we find out in 2 Chronicles 28, which I know you've read, but by way of review. 2 Chronicles 28, we find out that when Ahaz was afraid, he made a treaty with Assyria even though he knew that they would call their victory the credit to their foreign gods, he trusted them rather than trusting God. And so when Isaiah approaches him here, he says, hey, the thing you're afraid of won't come to pass. The thing you're trusting in Assyria, it's not gonna help you. It's gonna hurt you. They will swarm your land and they will crush you. And then he says, they'll be like a razor that shaves your head and your beard and your feet. Back then, a shaved head was a sign of dishonor, which is kind of messed up, but that's the truth in that context. So he was saying to him, hey, here's the deal. And here's the point for us. Your greatest problem is not the thing you fear. Your greatest problem is the thing you're trusting in. If you put your ultimate hope in anything other than the ultimate, it will not help you, it will hurt you. He says, you're gonna look to Assyria rather than God. Assyria won't help you, it will hurt you. And it's the same with us. As we are waiting for God to give us peace, many of us in our fear, we will go to other things for comfort or for hope. And that will not help you, it will hurt you. If you put your ultimate hope in anything other than the ultimate, it will not help. It hurts. Many people, politics has become their new religion. If I just get the new leader in office, then I will find peace. Has that worked? Does anyone feel more peaceful? If you look around our country today, there is more anxiety and anger and attack. Politics is not solving our greatest problems. And I'm not downplaying that we should have political leaders, but I'm saying if you fixed your hope there, I've watched the anger boil over in the streets. For many of us, we thought technology would be our saving grace. How much time will be saved through the conveniences of technology? And yet what happened? Our time-saving devices now absorb our time. And all this flow of information has not made us more informed as a people. It's made us more anxious. It's not helped us. It's hurt us. Money is not a stable place to put your hope. My first job out of 
college was as a youth pastor. My office was a broom closet. When I was moved to a larger office, I was told, you need to get some furniture. And a guy told me, meet me at my warehouse. I went to his warehouse and there were desks piled eight high from the floor to the ceiling of solid wood, beautiful desks. I said, where did you get these? And he said, Enron. Enron was the leading company you wanted to work for in Texas at the time. Enron had power and it had money, but it also had deceitful practices. And so this whole empire crumbled. And this man for a few thousand dollars took all their furniture and just gave it to me for free. And so I sat at the desks of a crumbled empire and I knew people who worked there that had friends leap out of buildings and take their life because that on which they had set their hope was suddenly gone. And I could tell you story after story of people who've looked to fame to be their comfort. Madonna said it about her own life. She said, I have an iron will, but my will has always been to conquer a horrible feeling of inadequacy. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And it's always pushing me, always pushing me. Even though I've become somebody, I got to prove I'm somebody. And the struggle never ends and probably never will. But some of us were looking, if I just get enough followers, then I'll feel complete. And here she says, as soon as you become somebody, now you're afraid of losing being somebody. She says, it's constantly pushing me. There is no peace there. And for many of us, we just go to addiction then I'll just open the bottle at night. And we're finding what Johnny Cash said. You start drinking the bottle and then the bottle starts drinking you. And here's the point. As we're waiting for a breakthrough from God, we will either shake in fear or we will stand in faith. But if you shake in fear, you will be like Ahaz. You will look to non-ultimate things to give you ultimate hope. And if you put your ultimate hope in anything other than the ultimate, it will not help you, it will hurt you. Be careful here. So this leads to the natural question. Well, then where is God in this? And this is our next point. Isaiah turns and begins to talk about God. And he says in chapter eight, verse five, the Lord spoke to me again. Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flowed gently and rejoiced over Rezin and the son of Ramalia, therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over its channels and go over all its banks. It will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reach even to the neck and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. He said, if you would have trusted God, he would have been like a gentle stream, but you trusted Assyria and it will flood you like a raging river. And he says, but the floodwaters will come, they'll be destructive. And yet, as they reach your neck, God will stop them. As they spread their wings like a bird of prey, they won't be successful. And then he does something interesting. He's not talking to Ahaz anymore. He says, they won't hurt you, O Emmanuel, God with us. And he speaks of this land as if it belongs to Emmanuel. Then he speaks to the nations in verse nine. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all of you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, it will not stand, for God is with us, Emmanuel. And then he says to his people in verse 11, 
For the Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, don't call conspiracy all that the people call conspiracy. Don't fear what they fear, nor be in dread, but the Lord of gods, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and many shall stumble on it. They'll fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. It's interesting. He says, you know, you put your hopes in something that will hurt you. He said, but God rules the nations. God whistles for Assyria like a bee and he stops it whenever he wants it as a raging river because God is with us, Emmanuel. And then he says, and God will accomplish his purposes Every army will shatter in his place. And then he calls him a rock. And then he says, that rock will either be a sanctuary, a refuge for you from the flood, or it'll be a stumbling stone you fall over. That's the second place we wait. The first is you're either gonna be wait, waiting, shaking in fear, or waiting, standing in faith. It depends on where you've set your hope. The second is, as it relates to God, he will either be a sanctuary to you or a stumbling block. He will either be a place of safety for you as you trust him, even though you may not see the working of his hand, you trust his heart, or he'll be a stumbling block, something you trip over. If you deny him and life doesn't work your way, you'll get angry at him and frustrated. But here's the thing. If you don't believe in God, it doesn't make God go away. If you deny his existence, it does not stop him from existing. If I deny that a stone is in front of me and keep walking, the stone doesn't disappear because I've denied it. I just trip over it. And he says, you need to decide in an anxious day, where will you wait? If you wait trusting God, you'll have peace even in an uncertain day. If you get angry at God and vengeful or forget him and deny him, God is still real and it will be a stumbling block to you. You can't deny him. You'll just end up stumbling. Napoleon discovered this. On the eve of the Battle of Waterloo, as he prepared for that battle, he told his generals in defiance, he said, you know what? I wanna start the battle early tomorrow because I wanna beat all these fools by 2 p.m. And one of his generals reminded him, man proposes, but God disposes, which was a riff off of Proverbs 16. And Napoleon heard that and said, it's about time you got something straight. Napoleon proposes, and Napoleon deposes. I do what I will. Then it started to rain. And his big cannons on which he relied got stuck in the mud. And he got crushed. And he lost. And then was exiled to an island where he took up in his spare time reading the Bible and taking seriously the God he had denied. You either stand on him as a sanctuary or you stumble over him as a rock. But your denial of him does not make him not exist. Matthew Paris is an atheist who, who wrote a, an article for uh, the Times in the UK. And it was a fascinating article called, As an Atheist, I Truly Believe Africa Needs God. And I don't have time to read the whole article, but in summary, he tells about his experience of going back to where he grew up, his boyhood home in Malawi. And he went back to see the wells that were being dug to provide fresh water. And as he saw them being dug, he said, it renewed my flagging faith in developmental charities. But he said, traveling in Malawi refreshed another belief too, one I've been trying to banish all my life. 
but an observation I've been unable to avoid since my African childhood. It confounds my ideological beliefs, stubbornly refuses to fit my worldview, and has embarrassed my growing belief that there is no God. Now a confirmed atheist, I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa, sharply distinct from the work of secular NGOs. Those alone will not do. Education alone will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings about spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. And then he goes on to explain, I tried to just say, well, it's their physical relieving of suffering. But he said, the facts don't, re- don't uh, support that. I'm watching people's hearts change and their lives change and their cultures change. And he said, so I'm trying to deny Christ, but I can't deny his power to stabilize a human heart. And he ends this article with a warning. They need Jesus Christ. And if they don't have them, all that's left, as he said, is the cellular phone or the machete. Consumerism or violence. And so he says they need God because man unto his own devices is in a dangerous place. Where are you waiting? Are you in shaky faith? Do you deny God and put your faith in something else? That something else will not help you, it will hurt you. And the God you deny will not support you, you'll stumble over him. He does not cease to exist and your need for him does not cease to exist. Bertrand Russell did not believe in God. He said, you are an accidental collocation of atoms that unfortunately developed self-consciousness. But he said, you must understand your life has no purpose and build your life on that unyielding despair. But then as he sat at the bedside of a sick colleague's wife, he said, the loneliness in humanity is unbearable. What we need is a love that can wash over it that is as powerful as what the religious teachers speak of. Anything less is useless. This man wanted to deny God, but as he looked at the world, he said, but we need him so badly. He stumbles over the stumbling stone, but you don't have to. You can build your life on him like a sanctuary. Where are you waiting in times of difficult? Are you trusting God, pouring out your heart to him, or are you running to some other comfort? That will hurt you, but he can help you. He can stabilize you in an anxious day. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who wrote the Gulag Archipelago about his time in the forced labor camps in Russia as he looked at the devastation of six million murdered by their own government. He said in a speech once, he said, you know, I remember as a child hearing the elders say, how did this befall Russia? He said, they would say, men have forgotten God. That's why this happened. He said, since then, I've spent 50 years working on the history of our revolution I've read hundreds of books, collected hundreds of personal testimonies, contributed eight volumes of my own towards the effort of clearing away the rubble left by that upheaval. But if I were asked to formulate as concisely as possible the main cause of the ruinous revolution that swallowed up some 60 million of our people, I could not put it more accurately than to repeat, men have forgotten God. That is why this has happened. We need him. We need a refuge in times of struggle. To deny him does not make him cease to exist. If you're struggling with the existence of God, shake your fist at him, go ahead. That's what C.S. Lewis did. He enraged at God when he saw the injustice in the world. But as he did that, it occurred to him, I'm judging God based on a moral standard. Where did I get that moral standard? 
And if it's not a universal standard, then I'm just raging against him based on my preferences, which isn't really as strong. I prefer you do things different. He said, no, I want to hold him to a moral order that circumscribes the universe. But to admit to a moral order outside of myself, I have to admit to a lawgiver outside of myself. So I'm raging against God for being God. And he's realized I've stumbled over the stumbling stone. I've got to deal with this God. And as he came to him with his anger and his frustration and his fear, he found that stumbling stone can be a sanctuary. And he wrote his autobiography about being surprised by joy. Where are you waiting? If it's in fear, you'll be shaky. If it's in faith, you have a sanctuary. So to close, as he continues to speak to them, the people begin to look to spirituality for answers. And we don't have time to read all this, but they start going to mediums and necromancers, chirp and mutter. Some of you may say, well, Ben, I do need some spirituality in my life. And so they start to look to spiritual answers, but they're not looking to the God of the word of God. They're not looking to Jesus, the son of God. They're looking to uh, a spirituality they can control. And so Isaiah closes the speech in verse 20 of chapter nine by saying, to the teaching and to the testimony, the solid rock comes from the revealed word of God, not from a spiritualism from within. He says, if they do not speak according to this word, they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they're hungry, they'll be enraged and they'll speak contemptuously against the king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they'll be thrust into thick darkness. That's the last place that you might be waiting. We'll either wait in fear or in faith. We'll either wait stumbling or secure in a sanctuary. And we'll either wait plunged into darkness or basking in the light. And he says, for them, they quit looking to heaven. They looked to the earth. And as they looked for answers in the earth, they didn't find it. All they found was deeper darkness money won't solve your ultimate problems. Political success won't give you the security you're longing for. A relationship won't heal the deepest longings in your heart. Nothing that we've leaned on as human beings will ultimately give us the stability we crave, the meaning we long for, the desires too deep and too strong. It's ultimate and only the ultimate can fill it. And as they search among the earth for answers, he says their searching only leads them to deeper and deeper darkness. But then in verse, or excuse me, chapter nine, verse one, he says, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he's made glorious the way by the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest. They're glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden, the staff from his shoulder, the rod of the oppressor. You've broken as in the day of Midian for every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. He says, Christmas reminds you that we sit in darkness. That's why I started with such a bummer of a poem. 
This text, I think six times, talks about darkness, darkness, gloom, deep darkness. The world is a broken place. And if you don't believe me, read the news and look in your own heart. The world's surrounded by darkness. And as we look to the earth, the answers we crave will not be found. And yet he says, in the gloom, there will be people who have joy like a harvest. How? He says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. He said, and on them a light has shone. Did you notice that? They didn't discover the light. It didn't emerge from outside of them. It shone onto them from above. That's what we need. What you and I need to get out of waiting in darkness is we need the grace of illumination. We will either wait in the dark, searching the world for answers, or we will wait in the light, looking to our King who has come. Uh, if they turned off the lights on this stage and I was plunged into deep darkness, let's say you were standing here next to me and suddenly you and I were in this cavernous room completely launched in darkness. If I looked at you and said, guide us friend, we're in trouble because you can't see any better than I am. And if the blind is leading the blind, we're both gonna fall in a pit. You can't help me. And if I go, well then fine. I'll just be guided by my inner light. It shall lead me home. I'm gonna fall off the stage. I'm gonna get hurt. My inner light will just lead me to fall. I need Jay Desai from production to turn the lights on. I don't know if you've ever been backstage and walked out. Often back there, the curtains are black, everything's black, it's darkness. For me, just to give you a window into it, sometimes when I'm coming onto a stage like this, this is how I come out. Just can't see anything. And as I'm fumbling out, it's problematic. I might trip over a drum riser. It could be catastrophic and embarrassing. What I need is a J to turn on his flashlight and to illuminate my path. Walk this way, you clueless man, and find safety and peace. I need an external light to guide me, to lead me, to show me where I am, show me the wrong path I should not go, and then lead me on the right path towards peace. And that's what this passage tells us we have. How do we get it? What's the light that shines? Here's our text. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice, with righteousness. And from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. How does God stop the chaos of this world the endless wars, the anger, the anxiety, and the fear, what will ultimately cause it to cease? It won't be us binding together. It won't be us figuring it out. It won't be technology that will improve the human heart. It will be illumination from heaven. And it will come not with a war and a tumult and a battle. It will come with the gentleness of a child. Napoleon, as he sat on that island and read the Bible, he said this, Alexander the Great, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself, we founded empires. But upon what foundation did these creations of our genius depend? Upon force they depended. 
Jesus alone founded his empire upon love. And to this very day, millions would die for him. He said, what we need, all my military might can't provide. What you need, all your genius and self-help books can't provide. He said, but one comes that looks meek, looks like a gentle stream, looks like a little child, but that child is God with us. What you saw in Isaiah 7 was a little bit of a picture of what Matthew saw ultimately come. In a day in Matthew's day where they were still under domination, he says, but now an actual version has had an actual child who's going to bring us peace. That's what Zechariah saw as he prophesied in Luke chapter one, because the tender mercy of our God, the sunrise shall visit us on high. That's one of my favorite names for Jesus, the sunrise. Are you in the dark? Look to the east, look to the rising sun. He will give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. That's what God has sent. He sent us a wonderful counselor. You need better advice than any of us can give you but you have a counselor who is wonderful. You need a mighty God, stronger than your problems, can stop the raging seas of Assyria, can unravel you from the addictions that you're suffering in now, can change your story in a moment. You need a mighty God and he has come. You need an everlasting father. Your problems are temporary, your pain are temporary, but your longings are eternal. And you need a God who is eternal too. And you need a prince of peace, shalom, well-being that goes all the way to the depths of you. And he's come, not from within, not from the earth, but from heaven. A child has been given. It's by grace a child has come. And the more we fix our eyes on him, the more light we see. And the more light we see, as Zacharias said in Luke, he will guide our feet into the paths of peace. Do you want peace? It's in him. Look to the sun. As you wait, fix your eyes on Jesus because he has come as a prince of peace. And for us now in an anxious day, he will come again. All throughout your New Testament, we wait for the second coming, the arrival of our King, the blessed hope, the one we'll see again, who will wipe away every tear and bring the peace we just can't generate on our own. Longfellow's poem was mad depressing. But as he talked about hearing those bells and they mocked his sadness, he closed his poem with this. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. They did not stop. They kept going. And as they went, they got louder and they got deeper. And these Christmas bells declared, God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail. The right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill towards men. I set my hopes on things on earth and I lost them all. Even good things will ultimately fade. He said, but I have hope and I can wait patiently even in a dark day. Why? Because the bells of Christmas ring loud and clear. God is not dead. Evil's not the end of my story. God has sent his son. God in heaven came to take on our darkness and he buried it in the earth and he came and he is light to the world. That's what John said. This light shines in the darkness and the darkness will not 
overcome him. You may feel like the darkness is overcoming you. It doesn't overcome him. Jesus broke the chains of your sin and mine as in the days of Midian. It is helpless before our mighty God. And he's shown a light into a dark world that we can know what we're for. We can know what's wrong with us and we can know how it's dealt with. The son of God will take on our frailty, take on our sin, let the darkness overwhelm him on that cross and then rise victoriously from the grave and say, wait patiently because I'm coming soon. I don't have a lot of hope in what I can accomplish. I don't have a lot of hope in what you can accomplish. I want you to do good. I want me to do good. But all my hope, my ultimate hope is in the ultimate one, the light who shone on us, the child that was given to us. Do you want peace? Look to the son, look to the prince. He is calling you today. God, the world waits and you you tell us, I love that your Bible is not saccharine sweet sentiment. Your Bible has the grit and dirt of life in it as we struggle with the anxiety of today, as we wrestle with the weariness of this COVID season. You tell us the world sits in darkness, darkness, gloom, deep darkness. It really is as hard as it feels. And yet there can be joy because a light has come. We feel our longing for security. But as we look to the earth, everything we look to will fail us. Our technology, our politicians, our, our teachers, our money, all of it can't ultimately give us the security we crave. And if we try to dismiss you, we stumble over you because we still know there should be a moral order and we can't create it. But God, if we come with faith, we can stand in a sanctuary that's stable. And into our darkness, a light dawns. I see the grace of God, the peace of God, the love of God, and I see it shining forth from the face of Jesus Christ. Napoleon said it. No one else was like this man. He's in a category all to himself. This was not an ordinary child, born of a virgin, born by the Holy Spirit of God, the ultimate Emmanuel, God literally with us. Not a temporary king, but the king whose kingdom will have no end. That's the king we're looking to, the ultimate fulfillment, the one true king, the son of God. And I wanna encourage you, friend, if you've never gone on a journey to understand him, read the Bible this Christmas. You literally have nothing to lose. Read the gospel of Luke and see your king coming for you and find hope in the light of his face. And if you've never put your faith in him, he is the only stable place to set your heart. And you can do that today. You can do it right now. You just tell him, God, my heart is faint, but I want it to have faith. I want the stability of knowing the rock of ages. I want the light of knowing the Prince of Peace, the light of men, Jesus Christ. God, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm a mess, but I know you sent your son that I might have life. And I wanna encourage you, wherever you are right now, whoever's in the room or not in the room with you, you talk to God right now. And I wanna encourage you to tell him, Lord, I need you. Lord, I trust you. King Jesus, I'm looking to you to be the forgiver of my sin, 
to be the light to illuminate my darkness, to be the hope that leads me through an anxious day in the pathways of peace and to be the one whom I will ultimately come safely home to. I trust you, King Jesus. Yeah, and if that's you, we would love to celebrate with you. We'd love to pray with you. If you put your faith in Jesus, a number is gonna come up on the screen, a word to text into it, will you let us know? Will you let us know what God's doing in your midst? We'd love to celebrate with you, resource you, help you however we can. And for those of you who have put your faith in him, we are in a difficult day, but we get to be hope-filled people. And when people see us have hope in the midst of difficulty, they'll be drawn to the light. The Grinch hated Christmas because he thought it was just about the presents and the tinsel. So he swept it all away. And do you remember what happened? The little who's sang anyway. And when he saw that Christmas wasn't all the fluff, there was something deeper. What did it do? It made his shriveled heart expand and he came to life. Christian, you have hope. Though a COVID Christmas may not be as fun as any other one you've had, there's an opportunity here for the world to see us have a hope that's deeper and stronger and wider and stretches into forever. Let them catch us singing because in the midst of this darkness, a light has come. We trust.